0: Hi, good morning. We will be starting in around 10 minutes. Thank you for coming. That's a really cool picture, Jacob. Where did you did you take that yourself? That picture? It's really cool. <laughs> oh.
1: No. I find beautiful pictures on the internet and then I share them with the world.
0: Nice. Well like it what do you know what type of bird this is?
2: Mmm, no, but it looks like a
1: hummingbird, but it's like a really paradise-looking
3: hummingbird. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Maybe a hummingbird. They are so cool. <laughs> they are amazing. Hi, Catherine. Oh, go ahead. I wanted to say something.
1: I heard... <laughs> immediately my mind uh, went to the statistic hummingbirds have hearts the size of a pencil
0: eraser yeah and they beat so fast it's so fascinating it's amazing Hi, Catherine. Hi, Yassine. Welcome from France. Uh, Cal. Hi, Victoria. How are you today? Hi, Kel. Come up. We are waiting for our guest speaker. Hi, Kel. How are you today? Still are waiting. Hi.
3: <laughs> Hi, Katrina. Hi, everyone. So what's the topic katrina
0: uh. uh do you see the link on top of the room um so it's about yeah. quantum physics usually electrons should have one type of frequency but recently um this group has discovered that they can have more than one at the same time which is really intriguing and uh yeah we will learn all about it today here and
3: yeah what basically discover is uh, electron have more than one frequency that's the discovery mm,
0: yeah if you want to go to the link but or just listen until the our guest speaker because he will present uh so um he will present the data way better uh, so, they can have different spins and charges. Um,
3: yeah. So, for the time being, can I uh, explain something about quantum mechanics which I know?
0: Uh, yeah, go ahead. But when the guest speaker arrived, I will... um, Just to let you know, I will interrupt you, it's not to be... Not nice, but we have him only for a certain amount of time, so... Uh, and I yeah. you know, took time to plan this that's why I will then interrupt you. Okay,
3: right, 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 right. You're right I will I will stop after you know some more speaker will come So basically if someone is you know new to quantum mechanics or in the audience so basically what quantum mechanics is it is actually the phenomena occurring at the transitional June between the mass and energy and here we see certain you know uh, uh, certain phenomena which is very difficult to comprehend because it's a transition zone wave wave matter wave matter is constant fluctuation so that's why here we need a different kind of physics different kind of mechanics so this is this is a basic definition which I can give about the quantum mechanics. I think more speakers have come, so I have to stop.
0: Hi, Pedro. How are you today? Thank you for coming. Uh, to unmute, um, it's all the way on the bottom. Hello. Yes.
1: Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. <laughs> you Perfect. Hear you.
0: Thank you for coming.
1: No, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here
0: another um, person from Porto. I'm also originally from Porto, but...
1: <laughs> oh, uh, hola!
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I didn't grow up most of the time there, so...
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I mean, strictly speaking, I, I mean, I, I spent most of my time in Porto. I'm actually from a, a town just outside Porto called uh, Povod um, <laughs>
0: and
1: uh But yeah, I mean, I spent my life
0: there until... A friend oh. of mine, she's also awesome. from I think Rosa, but I I don't know from Gaba, I don't know if you know (laughs) Gabba. Yeah, Yeah, and yeah, I was a Gaba student and then I went abroad. So that was the longest. You know, I spent as a grown up uh, being in Porto, living in Porto. (laughs) Yeah,
1: same. I mean, I left Portugal uh, almost eight years ago, Uh, but uh yeah i mean most of my life was there
0: wonderful it's a great place to be it's the best
1: place. yeah no no i, I agree <laughs> exactly exactly be- better than lisbon better than lisbon
0: <laughs> oh yeah definitely better than <laughs> i don't know if nobody you know realizes but um there's like in, i think it's very common in european cities right in general to have like in the same country, like uh, a city that are kind of, you know.
1: Rivals. <laughs> yeah, kind of rivals, so.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll wait a few minutes. Uh, Golda, I invited you to speak. Uh, I don't know if it's working. I see you raised your hand. If it doesn't work, then uh, please just restart the room. Like, come back in again if it doesn't work too. Or click, try to click on your profile. And then on the bottom, you should see the invitation. So. Okay. Hi, Frank. How are you today? Meet Pedro. Um, Frank here. That's one of our moderators.
2: Good evening.
1: I'm fine. Hello. Hi, Pedro.
0: Yeah, uh, let me. Yeah, everyone is saying welcome to clubhouse. Ha- I hope you did. You get to use it, your account in the meantime a little bit, or I don't know if you, if you went to some rooms or something.
1: Me, yeah, yeah, I had a chance to explore it's fine <laughs> okay good yeah yeah it's very intuitive to use and uh, yeah i think i know more or less how it works now
0: yeah there's some interesting rooms here um like clubs and rooms there is the you know our club of course <laughs> i i also like to listen sometimes to tech news around the world uh sometimes it's good uh, to get updates there too and uh, yeah i don't uh, know if uh, you have recommendations of some rooms and clubs
2: i will have a recommendation <laughs> that is the it's about time club uh, with paul borough there are a lot of uh, what is it? Phys- physics? Physics? I always uh, mix the physicians and what are the others? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a lot of physics people in there, and it's really fascinating. And they have uh, loads of replays uh, with uh, extraordinary people.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree. That one, I I almost forgot about that one. That one is great. And I think we can start. Um, So welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome uh, to Pedro. Um, He is uh, joining us here today to present his work, um, his fascinating work. And um, before we start, let me give you a little bit of an introduction, so you get to know him um, a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, as I mentioned before, who was here um, before, Piedro Viennes, uh, Viennes <laughs> is originally from Porto, Portugal, just like me, <laughs> and he um, is, um, since uh, 2022, uh, a doctoral Prize Fellow at the Integrated Quantum Materials Group in the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. And um, he did his uh, master's. um, Well, he did first, he did his uh, bachelor in physics at the University of Porto. And then he did his master's uh, in physics at UCL and his master's in optics. Um, and uh, at the Photonics and Imperial College. And in 2019, he was also a visiting assistant in research at Yale Quantum Institute. And um, after that, he uh, went to Cambridge to did his PhD. And he was a member of the semiconductor physics group and also in Cambridge. Um, so, Pietro's work mostly um, focuses on how electrons um, interact with another uh, when confined to lower dimensions or um, where quantum f- effects are strongly enhanced. Um, and he reported um, the the existence of previously unknown state of matter um, and he um is he he has expertise that includes device fabrication electron beam lithography low temperature low noise and high pressure measurements and currently um, his main research interests include strongly interacting many body systems quantum spin liquids thermoelectric and energy harvesting um yeah so we are very honored to have you here your uh, work is really fascinating and before we start if that's okay with you we usually ask like a couple of um of questions are uh, like more broad so how uh did you find interest in science was it always something you were fascinated about like was it a teacher or some great class you took or something interesting you saw, you read? And, uh, and we think it's kind of interesting story to hear.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, Katarina for the nice introduction. Um, how did I start in science? Um, so just to check, can everyone hear me? I never know if yep. my audio is working yeah absolutely yeah? okay great. um yeah how did i start in science i mean i i guess um i mean normally um, in portugal when you're doing the standard high school curriculum at uh, when you uh when you start 10th grade um you have to choose between science economics humanities and arts and it was between these four uh it was always pretty more or less clear to me that I would go down the science track. Now, I didn't know at the time whether or not I would want to become a scientist or even study that at at university. Um, Then uh, sort of eventually, let's say a year in, uh, I thought I wanted to become a chemist and I really liked chemistry. Um, But uh, the more I studied chemistry, um the more I realize that uh and I hope there's no chemists hearing listening to this, but um no, I'm joking. But um yeah, the more I realize that uh, actually once you start going down to the very um details it it it's really physics and specifically quantum um uh, mechanics and quantum physics. Um and I guess that's more or less when I decided I'd like to study physics uh, at university, or at least explore it. Uh, uh, I wasn't sure whether or not I would like to do research, that came a bit later. Um, But yeah, during my, um, when I was also in secondary school in Portugal, we have, and like in many other countries, there's this thing called the the Science Olympiads. So uh, I did that in physics, and uh, uh, that also allowed me to start uh learning a little bit more beyond the standard curriculum uh before university um and yeah it was more or less that so then i i did my undergrad and uh, um, after my undergrad i had the opportunity to move to the uk and that's where i've been uh since uh first to do my masters then my phd and uh that uh finished uh, two three months ago but uh i think it's just a very standard story i i, I always liked math and science and uh solving problems. And, and I, I, I like being in the lab.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's great that you kind of went for what you were always kind of passionate about. That's interesting. And for this project here, was there like, um a, a, is there like a story behind? How did you come to join this group? And, um you know, was it I don't know. Easy to get grants for it, where um, you uh, <laughs>
1: know, there's some background story. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is actually. Um, so I started my PhD in uh, um, two thousand seventeen, um, and I so so I was applying for this in two thousand sixteen. Now you might know that in 2016 something happened in the uk uh, brexit <laughs> so of course um initially i was applying for a phd program which i had been accepted to at the uh, uh, npl it's called the national physical laboratory um and that's where i was going to go but then of course uh, as a um at the time eu citizen uh, in with brexit happening uh funding became very uncertain um, and so suddenly I had this sort of offer for PhD, but the funding wasn't guaranteed. Um, at the time it happened that the university, so the NPL is a is a sort of like a research lab. It's not a university. So they, they need to be affiliated with the university to grant degrees. And it happened that the NPL and this specific project was affiliated with Cambridge and specifically the semiconductor physics group there. So that's how I, I met my supervisor. Um, Then, of course, because of funding, I I ended up moving to a slightly different project and uh, that had funding coming uh, from somewhere else. But that's sort of how I made my way uh, to Cambridge and to uh, specifically the group where I did my PhD. Um, And uh, so, yeah, that's sort of the the story. Uh, This specific project, um, it's quite an an old project. Um, So there's uh, two PhD students before me who I can trace uh, back uh, some of the early work. Um, I'd say at the beginning of my PhD, it was sort of something which we thought would be relatively quick and and easy to do and and straightforward. Um, But then it like is often the case in science, you start seeing one more thing and another thing and another thing and then suddenly it's been three, four years. Um, And then what I initially thought this project would um, lead us to it it led to completely different directions we weren't expecting uh but so that's sort of how i i i ended up uh doing this for the past four years
0: wow that's interesting yeah that's so um yeah that's interesting that you let yourself by the data and um you know yeah pretty much. <laughs> exactly okay so yeah now um the floor is yours basically if you uh feel free to let us know if you're fine with us interrupting while you talk about your work and your project or um if we should wait with questions um until later so um yeah the floor is yours no i'm i'm, and- I'm happy
1: if- anyone feel free to to ask any questions at any point uh, i was just wondering so would you like me to just very uh like give a sort of a, a very general uh view of, uh, of the paper and uh, sort of what we did and why we did yeah. it uh, yeah. would that be yep uh yeah so this paper i think the the link is somewhere here but it's on science advances it's open access so hopefully everyone should be able to open it and download and there won't be a paywall it's also an archive um And basically, um, before I get into the details of the paper, let me just try and explain a little bit of what we're doing and uh, uh, um, in what context uh, um, um, is this work being done. Um, So basically, if if I had to summarize my research in in one sentence, I, I basically would say that I study electrons, so fundamental particles in nature inside solids. And probably anything that you that. Any material, any object surrounding you right now, Uh, it's made up of atoms. And uh, as you know, there's a nucleus and there's electrons around it. So I'm not so interested in the nucleus. That's nuclear physics. I don't do that. Uh, I'm interested in what's around the nucleus. So electrons and uh, we live in a three dimensional world. So that's uh, uh, most things that that's around us. But turns out that um, recent technological improvements uh, in the, for the past uh, few decades uh, actually allow us to confine electrons to different dimensions. So probably everyone has heard about graphene, so that's a two-dimensional material. Essentially, electrons there can only move in a 2D plane, XY. Um, you have also other things, uh, semiconductor quantum wells, um, Thin film, so these are all uh, structures and materials you can make in a lab and industry, in, in some cases, uh, where electrons can only sort of live in this two dimensional world, uh, sort of like flatland. Um, uh, we can actually take this uh, to the next level and you have a, a one dimensional system. So that's, as you can see from the title of the paper, it's, uh, is the sort of system we use uh, things like semiconductor quantum wires, but also carbon nanotubes. So the electrons can only move along one direction. Uh, And actually you can take even this a step further and uh, uh, go to zero dimensions, uh, essentially where you have strong constraints along X, Y, Z. And so those we we normally call quantum dots. But so what's interesting about playing with the dimensions is that the, the way electrons behave can change quite drastically. Um, and that's essentially why people are interested in different dimensional systems. They're looking for interactions and specifically they're looking for strong correlations. And so now you can ask me why Why do we care about strong correlations and, um, and these correlated states, which again, is also another word you can see in the title, strongly correlated one dimensional conductor. Um, the way, so this goes by many names in the field, you can call it, um, in, in the literature, in physics, you, you will hear this as many body phenomena. Uh, more recently, there's a, a sort of a, a better sounding uh, term. We call it emergent phenomena. Um, the idea behind this is uh, I like to think this in terms of birds. So if you, if you think of a bird, one bird, and you, you study everything there is to know about that bird, then my question to you is, would you be able to predict the patterns that emerge when uh, groups of birds come together? Uh, flocks of birds Um, and uh, the answer is probably no because that's a a group behavior, it's not an individual behavior and so it turns out that electrons behave in the exact same way, Uh, you have one electron uh, and uh, it can do its things, particle physicists study that, but then you bring a bunch of electrons together and you start having this collective uh, emerging phenomena, things like superconductivity, forms of magnetism, and they're they're really cool things to study because your your material and your system can start behaving in a completely different way. And so 1D is is interesting because in 1D, you always end up with these states where these correlations arise, and you always end up with this interesting new phases of matter just because of geometry alone, geometrical confinement. So that's why we, we go to 1D. Um, we're looking for these uh, new types of um, uh, emerging properties. Let's put it like that, yeah. um, and um, it, it, it's sort of uh, like your your. If we go back to the bird analogy, it's sort of like you start with individual birds, but then you put them together. And suddenly, instead of birds, you start seeing geese or or elephants. I don't know. You start seeing other things. Um, And of course, quantum mechanics also comes in uh, play. And that's where things start getting uh, very non-intuitive. But so, talking specifically about this system. um, So essentially here we were looking at a one dimensional system uh, of electrons. Um, and this is strongly correlated. So if you picture yourself in a corridor, uh, a very narrow corridor, so you can't go to the sides. there's people in front and behind of you. There's no way for you to do anything without bumping into those people, or, or you can't get out with them without those people also moving. It's the exact same thing with electrons. If you, if they're confined down to these wires, the whole thing behaves as a whole. Uh, essentially you stop having individual electrons. You start having group collective behavior. And so what's interesting about this is that um so electrons as particles have properties uh, spin and charge being two of those so you might uh, remember on i know from um, um, early science courses so the electrons are negatively charged particles Uh, spin is a quantum property it's not very important to go into detail what it is but you can sort of think of it as if you think of an electron as a ball spinning it can sort of spin clockwise or anti-clockwise that's sort of like it Um, but so these are two properties that electrons have and they normally together so you, you electrons as a fundamental particles who, as far as we know there's no substructure so these two things are together when one thing goes the other also goes but so what's happened what happens in 1d and uh, what was quite exciting was that uh, actually in 1d these two things separate they split um it's sort of like a, a spin goes in one direction charge goes in the other uh, if you read the, the press release behind this paper uh, we sort of came up with this analogy of a slow and fast lane Essentially, the idea is if you're driving your car and there's a slow and a fast lane, now imagine that suddenly half of your car goes down one lane and the other half goes to the, through the other lane and because they have different masses, they'll have different speeds, so one goes faster than the other. Um, that's sort of what's happening to the electrons in these 1D systems, uh, uh, the spin and charge split as collective excitations, and uh, one has a higher mass than the other, uh, and therefore one propagates faster than the other. Now. Uh, this result had sort of been known, um, just to give you a little idea, um, theoretically, this can be traced back uh, to the 50s uh, by two people, Tomonaga and Lutinger. So the, the theoretical model for those more interested in that behind this, it's called the tomonaga Lutinger liquid model. Um, the theory sort of was introduced in the 50s and then uh, uh, finalized in the 80s by Haldane. Experimentally, there was sort of some evidence about this in the 90s. Uh, I would say that strong evidence for this separation of spin and charge uh, came around the mid 2000s, so about 10, 15 years ago. So that had already been known. So that's sort of where where the, the, the field and the literature was when I started my field. Now, what I haven't mentioned yet is that all of this that I've said has a caveat, and that is that this is only uh, predicted and expected to work at low energies. And uh, so the fact that spin and charge separate at low energies uh, wasn't new. Like I said, experimentally, it's sort of been observed uh, by two specific groups. So one was my group, the other uh, there's also uh, another group who did uh, similar uh, measurements. Um, and that, I think, was uh, sort of uh, clear uh, evidence for this property. Before that, there sort of were many different setups sort of kind of seeing it, but not very clearly um but all of this was known to happen at low energies and so what was interesting about this paper and what we saw was not so much a separation between spin and charge like i said this has already was already known but more the fact that this now was happening not only at low energies but also at very high energies so the 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 assumption in the field was um that uh, uh any anything like this this collective properties at high energies would uh, Completely disappear. Uh, they would sort of be washed away, and you can sort of think of this because if you think of most of things you've heard about quantum mechanics, they normally uh, work uh, either at low energy, uh, low temperatures, or high pressure, or low vacuum, or or, or very small systems. So nanotechnology. Uh, you normally don't see a quantum effects in the macroscopic world at room temperatures and and so on. Um, and there's a reason for that, is because things tend to get smeared out at, at high energies. Uh, the fact that we were starting to, to see these uh, excitations at very high energies, and uh, uh, if you want me to put a number to it, uh, approximately five times higher than what we were seeing before, um, was very surprising. Uh, because then uh, the question was, how? Uh, how is this not uh, breaking away, breaking apart? Um, And so that's sort of what, uh, in in non-technical terms, what the separate spin and charge Fermi-Cs mean, is that we went from having a feature at low energy to actually having something uh, uh, along the the entire band, and that's what we call a Fermi-C. So yeah, so that's, I, I guess, a sort of a very brief introduction of sort of the field and what the motivation was and what the main result was. I'm an experimentalist, by the way. So um, on on this paper, most of people, uh, apart from Alex Sipliatev and Andrew Schofield, um, most people are experimentalists as well. um, And uh, um, yeah, so if I don't, if if you're looking at the paper now, uh, the in Figure One, Panel B, that's where you see the what the device looks like. This is a semiconductor device that you can make inside the clean room. You can see the scale there, but for example, um, our wires are about 50 nanometers or so. So if you think that, um, uh, to give you an idea of the size, uh, I think the width of human hair is between 1 and 100 microns. So a nanometer is a thousand times smaller than that. So this is maybe a hundred times, a thousand times smaller than the thickness of your hair. So that's the system. Uh, We can actually change the densities. Uh, The lowest densities we actually went to was about 17, 18 electrons per micron. Uh, I find this quite cool because normally, um, again, if you're a chemist, um, when we think about electrons, we think in terms of maybe Avogrado's number, 10 to the 26. We can't really imagine big numbers. If I tell you to imagine 10 objects or 100 objects, you can. If I tell you to imagine the difference between one and 10 million, probably looks the same in your head but 15 is actually something you can picture in your head and imagine uh, and the system is 15 electrons uh, then of course we have these arrays so you multiply that by 400 but to me it's quite exciting that just essentially measuring a signal coming from 15 electrons interacting with one another or 18 um, I think that, that that's quite cool um but uh, yeah so that's what the device looks like there's a number of gates uh, i won't get into the technical details but essentially by playing with those different colored gates that allows us to set uh the tunneling conditions so that we can actually probe this system uh, the technique we use tunneling spectroscopy it's sort of like a microscope it's it really basically you have your probe and you have your system of interest and we're we're mapping that system uh, so we can observe its excitations and, and details. And so the sort of maps we do is what you see, for example, in figure 2c. Um, and then you look at these maps and you start looking at resonance. So the, the white bits uh, between the red and the, 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 the blue. So that's a differential. So the white will be a, a a peak or valley, a maximum or minima. And you start seeing these resonance, but you see them with different slopes. And I can actually tell you a, a little bit more about figure 2c. Um, and the story uh, uh, b- um, behind this. So if you are a condensed matter physicist and if you studied free particle systems or particles that behave like free particles, um, you'll know that they sort of follow a, a, a parabolic dispersion. It's a parabola. And so when we first measured this, uh, that's what we were expecting. Uh, we wanted to see a parabola and we were trying to fit our data with a parabola. Uh, And I couldn't. I I kept trying it. And and no matter what I did, uh, a a parabola just wouldn't fit. And uh, of course, I would tell this to my supervisor and he would come back to me, tell me, well, one of your parameters is wrong. So you need to calibrate for this or that. So all these curves, you see there's there's a number of parameters behind it. Um, and so we kept thinking, okay, maybe the, the thickness is wrong or the, the mass is wrong or the capacitance are wrong. And then we went and we simulated or we went and we measured using a different technique. And we kept getting better and better constraints in these parameters and still we couldn't fit this with a single parabola. And so this was more or less at the end of my second year. And that's when I had the opportunity to go to, to Yale Um for visiting the theory group so like i said i'm an experimentalist i had a a lot of data to analyze at that point and it was quite good to just get away from the lab because being surrounded by theorists there was no temptation to go and do more experiments and so it was at that point that we sort of so so we had this preconceived idea that we should see one parabola and then we tried and tried and tried and we couldn't see it and it's at, at that point that we started thinking okay if we now think our calibration is right and we can't think of anything else that could explain this maybe that's it maybe it's not one parabola and then the question became what is it and so that's where theorists might come in handy because then they they can give you ideas or at least things you might try and might be might work and so that's when i uh so the 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 panel in figure 2a that's the theory prediction so that's when I, I came across that picture uh, and that was proposed to me. And then the second I fit it to my data within probably less than a month, we w- we were getting very good fits like we, we didn't see before because it turns out that it wasn't one parabola, but it was two, which in hindsight is obvious because if, if you think of spin and charge separating, you would maybe say, okay, maybe you have one parabola associated with each one with spin, one with charge, but But for the first two years of my PhD, it wasn't obvious. (laughs) And uh, we kept trying to do this with just one single parabola. Um, So that's why you see the the green parabola in figure two C for spin and the the magenta one for for charge. Um, What was surprising was really that um, up to before. And if you see the papers before this, you you only see uh, one parabola there. Um, And that actually we now believe um, I wouldn't say it was wrong. It's more that our calibration at the time didn't allow us to to resolve that. So we thought it was one and we were happy with it. And so that's the main result. And that's from there that this two Fermi C story and separation of spin and charge can be inferred. Uh, Then there's two other small results, just to quickly wrap up uh, that this paper also has. Um, uh, The first one is in figure three, Um, we call them the replicas really what they are are sort of like echoes of the main mode you you can sort of if you if you shout in a room you have the the main uh so there'll be a loud noise and then you might hear some echoes which are weaker and damped so these replicas are sort of like echoes of the main mode what's exciting about this is that again this is not predicted by the 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 original theory so it was completely new and these echoes are expected to depend on length so that's why for example, in panel B and in panel C, you see little lengths from one micron all the way to eighteen micron. Uh, so, um, and you see that as we change the length, the the, the strength of these features uh, also changes. So this was completely new. the The, the theory didn't. The, there was sort of a theory that predicted this, but that theory was originally spinless. And of course, if we, we know we have spins, there's no such thing as electrons without spin. So uh, and the theory sort of like gave us a. a an idea of maybe what we should see but we knew from the start that the theory couldn't be complete because it didn't include uh, spin but so that that actually that was uh, when i first started my phd this was exactly what i was hoping to observe uh, replicas i thought this was if you asked had asked me 4 years ago sort of like what i wanted the main result of my phd to be it would have been this uh, this replica story uh, and we did see it but uh, it turned out to be more of a, a a secondary result compared to the main result which was the the 2 FMEC c story Um, which again i think it's often the case in science that you start doing something uh, you think you want to prove this hypothesis or or see this and then in doing so you end up stumbling across something else Um, but yeah so that was the 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 replica story again you can think of this as echoes Uh, again one of the Non-intuitive uh, things, I guess, that happen in one D. Uh, because, uh, by the way, I, I maybe uh, I should say it clearly, but none of this—at least spin separation between spin and charge uh, replicas—as far as we know right now, none of this happens in two uh, D or three D. It could. Uh, be, uh, there's people working in that, but I would say, while the while the theory in one D started in the fifties, uh, and the experiment only came. In the 2000s 2010 and now i would say that in high dimensional systems the theories probably started 10 years ago and the experiments may come in 30 40 years time i don't know Uh, but yeah none of this so far has been observed in in high dimensions Um, and yeah just to conclude then the, the the final result uh so the um i mentioned there's three results one is a spin charge the other is the replica the the final one is in figure four which was we were just started to play with uh, how many 1 d systems we had uh, well, sort of uh, I don't want to get into technical terms, but uh, by changing the density you can go from having one channel to two to three, so we call those sub bands, and then um while sub once you have more uh, they start to screen each other electrically screen it's sort of like uh when you have blinds and you close your blinds so that the sun doesn't come in, it's sort of like that. It it, it damps the, the main signal. And so that's uh, we started playing with that because, of course, fundamentally what, what we're doing here is we're playing with the Coulomb interaction. Um, and by screening, you can make it weaker, you can make it stronger, you can uh, make all, the, the, all these effects depend on the strength of the interactions so um, that allowed us to do a systematic study on, on, on that and that's just uh, what's shown in, in figure four so yeah that's a very quick overview of the paper and its main results uh, um, now maybe just to conclude you might ask okay this is all very nice and, and fundamental physics and whatever but uh, why um why do we care about this and what's interesting mostly and um. At least the way I see it, uh, the most exciting thing about this work was that, um, like I said, you're saying uh, everyone working in, in quantum materials and, and 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 solid state physics, we observe these amazing phenomena, but we observe them at very low temperatures, so close to absolute zero, something like minus two hundred and seventy three degrees Celsius, or I don't know how much that is in Fahrenheit, but that, um, you we observe them at very high pressures, uh, thousands and thousands of atmospheres. Uh, we observe them under conditions which we don't live in. Ideally, we would like to have a uh, something that was superconducting at room temperature or at uh, uh, ambient uh, pressure, or, or or at least that didn't require such extreme conditions. And that's really the sort of a, a, I would say the holy grail of condensed matter. And so. The problem is what I was saying, all these uh, um, all, all these excitations, uh, they sort of disappear, they smear out, they, they, they get destroyed once you go into the high energy regime. Now what we're starting to see here is at least, uh, and of course, I'm not saying we're, we're nowhere anywhere close uh, to, to, to having it uh, at room temperature, but essentially the, the, the most exciting thing about this paper was that we were seeing um, these excitations are quite high energies, and that was surprising and that was quite exciting. And of course, then that raises the question, uh, can we do this in high dimensions that because of course, one dimensional systems are hard to integrate, but in 2D, you have graphene in 3D, you have everything that surrounds you. Uh, and can we somehow replicate this there where you have uh, so that you can bring these properties out of the quantum world, or or they'll still happen because of quantum effects, but uh, make them uh, more useful because they're happening uh, closer to the conditions we live in. Um, And uh, so this is more or less what I'm working on at the moment. I moved sort of from semiconductors to the more general field of quantum materials. Uh, of course, there's more direct uh, implications of this study. So this result uh, right now is a, 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 another project I'm involved on uh, uh, that was mentioned at the beginning is what we call energy harvesting. So maybe we don't need to go to room temperature. If, even if we can raise to one or two Kelvin, that's a temperature of outer space. So then you can have these things working at very cold temperatures. But if they're working inside a satellite, uh, that's fine, because it's a temperature of outer space and, 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 and would be a big uh, field of research is how to produce uh, or harvest energy in space to power satellites, uh, rockets, I don't know. Uh, so that's one of the things I'm looking at at the moment. Um, the other thing, just to conclude, is a part of uh, this thing called the European MicroKelvin platform. So everything you see in this paper, the lowest temperature at which it was measured was three hundred millikelvin, and actually right now, so I've been here for three weeks now, we we've wrote a grant to to go into the ultra low temperature regime. So currently, this same sample you see in the paper is at five millikelvin. So that's two orders of magnitude colder, um, and you do see new things once you get colder. Sometimes that was what I was hoping for, and we 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 think we are seeing those um but yeah at the end of the day uh, it's exciting to play in these conditions it's very far away from where we live but um yeah you would then like to hopefully make it use of this and, and improve the technology um and um, yeah that's uh i guess uh what people are <laughs> doing condensed matter and uh, sort of i think a quick overview of the paper and if anyone has any questions or something that wasn't clear i'm happy to discuss it
0: yeah thank you so much peter for this um yeah really great presentation of your really cool work um yeah i want to give people a chance to ask a question so um i saw ben you joined the stage two um take up Frank, if you have a question, plus your microphone. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ben.
3: Hey, uh,
2: Pedro, thanks for the interesting presentation. I seem to have stalked you around the world. I, too, went to Imperial and now live in Cambridge, so, uh, <laughs> so great to hear from you. In uh, Figure 1B, where you talk about SB, are they something like sidebands in radio? Is, is there anything, I uh, think you're calling them subbands, but is it is it a completely different thing, or does it have a similar? Mechanisms of uh, sidebands.
1: So, sorry, can you say that again? Uh, figure one B
2: or one C? Yeah. Two? Well, so in figure well, in figure one in general, you've got things marked as SB. You're calling them sub-bands.
1: And yes, sub-bands,
2: think, yeah. Are they anything like sidebands you would
1: see in radio? The, no, honest, no, uh, no. So that was just a, a sort of the term uh, uh, that um, got popular popular popularized in the literature. So. Um, Normally when you, uh, it's not, so you'll see that right at the top of panel C, I wrote the 2D band. And actually, if you go the full map, that is not on the paper, but it's in my thesis. Um, Normally when in in, in condensed matter, this kind of dispersion relationships we call bands. And uh, in the case of 2D, that's why you have a 2D band. Um, the way we create our 1D system, what we do is, is we start it as 1D, as 2D. You can think of sort of like a a, a, a plane of electrons. And then you start to squeeze the electrons from the sides so that eventually your plane becomes a line, uh, of course, with a finite thickness. So strictly speaking, it's not perfectly 1D, but it's what we call quasi-1D. And so when that happens, the, the, the main band splits into multiple bands which are below the band and therefore we call them sub bands and that's why you see four three two one uh so the the sub bands which are below the 2d band uh, is when the when we see this transition between 2d and 1d behavior so that this was the first measurement uh, we did because of course if you start doing an experiment and you say you're working with a one-dimensional system then first question people will ask is how do you know it's 1d and not just a a very narrow two D, and you can show that by showing that the band splits and becomes multiple bands, which we call subbands. Wicked! Okay, thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for answering that. Um, in the paper, you describe, um, you know, you had to kind of um, basically refine or change the methods you were measuring, um, um, which is uh, similar to a spectrometer, um, I read and um, this photo emission spectroscopy. So how did you had to, to basically adapt the, the measuring <laughs> system to to be able to uh, come, you know, see this result?
3: Yeah, so um,
1: the technique is called magneto-tunneling spectroscopy. I guess, uh, I mean, I can sort of trace back the the original proposal and the original idea almost to, I think, 98, 99. Again, mostly on the theory side. And then there were people uh, doing this with, um, in energy, but not in momentum. So in our plots, in our maps, like um, figure 2c, uh, essentially the x-axis is momentum, the y-axis is energy. So for those familiar with it, this is what we call a dispersion relation. But that's not a, doesn't uh, the word's not very important. But essentially, yeah, the, the technique was originally proposed in the end of the 90s. Then people started doing this in energy, but without momentum resolution. Uh, momentum is tricky because of, you need to... Uh, your design and the way you engineer this device needs to be very well calibrated. Otherwise, you would need huge fields, and you wouldn't be able to do this in a cryostat. You'd have to go to a cyclotron facility or something like that. Which, of course, then for other reasons, we wouldn't be able to do this measurement. Um, but uh, yeah, so normally when I try to explain this technique, this really is a um, a microscope, um, in the same way you you look at cells under an optical microscope. Now, of course, it looks more like a, a a quantum tunneling microscope, for example, rather than a, a, a classical optical microscope. But again, that's just because what we're observing is, is very small and, and of course, uh, um, optics wouldn't work. Um, but but uh, if, if I can get just a little bit more technical, really what this is is spectroscopy. So a very well-known um, technique that you mentioned is called ARPES, which is angle-resolved photo-emission spectroscopy. Uh, there, what you're basically doing is you're your, your shining light, you're sending photons to your sample, and then you detect uh, the electrons that get kicked out. And basi- basically doing this measurement for different angles and different intensities allow you to sort of map the, the band structure uh, again of uh, this crystal. It's a very well-known uh, technique. It's used amply, um, but this technique is a, a surface probe. So basically it only allows you to measure the top few layers of atoms at your sample what we're doing is basically something similar to that uh at least in principle the same thing but we're not at the surface the the system actually so that in in figure 1c 1b what you see there is an sem a scanning electron microscope picture of the device but the actual system what you're seeing is the surface the actual system is buried below the surface a hundred nanometers or so below the surface and maybe that, that may sound like it's not a lot but actually when it comes to layers of atoms a 100 nanometers is huge so arpes wouldn't help us here because like i said ARPES uh, photoemission spectroscopy only probes the very top layers and so what we're actually doing is we, we we have our system buried below the surface now you can ask what what's what advantage do you get by having a system that's buried rather than a system that's at the surface and 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 the quick answer to that is that the system is much more robust it's much more resilient resilient Because in ARPES you need to be under high vacuum, any kind of impurity, any kind of defect, any kind of fracture will impact your signal. While if now everything is just buried down, it's protected from atmosphere. So I don't need vacuum to do this measurement. I I literally can grab the sample. It's it's sort of like one centimeter by one centimeter, the the actual chip carrier, not the sample, Uh, and I can move it around. I normally don't because then other things could happen. But if I wanted to, I could almost throw it against a wall and maybe it would uh, survive. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to try. Uh, but it's much more robust than a typical harvest measurement. Um, um, so, so yeah, that, that's a technique. Basically, w- w- what we had to do then was um so of course you're seeing the devices that work but it, this was actually a, a lot of uh so in in total there's six different devices in this paper because we were doing a, a study in length and we also wanted to collect statistics to make sure that we weren't just observing a fluke um but before that we had different generations where we were playing with the dimensions we were where we were sort of like getting the, the technique right so one thing that's um I, i'd say maybe unique about this sample is that you might see that there's normally when you do fabrication chips and the sort of things that are inside your phone and your computer, everything, all of that is flat. And if you look at the picture, you will see that there's these little bridges that actually suspended. So they were fabricated in 3D, not 2D. Um, and there's actually another paper, uh, it's on somewhere in the citations, it's a, an applied physics letters paper, but th- that's literally just about how to fabricate this structure. So there's, there was a lot of iteration and, and fabrication um improvement that we had to to overcome in, in order to get this device to work uh but yeah once that that was that uh then we were able to use the technique and then uh, and collect the data and then the question was how to analyze it uh, but uh yeah i mean the, the technique itself is just like a very powerful um, high resolution microscope i guess because again at the end of the day remember uh, at its very limit we were probing and studying uh, the excitations of between 15, 15 and 60 electrons so uh, if you want to see something you need to you need to have very good resolution because the signal gets very very small
0: that's really fascinating and um just you know for in general for people to know do you do you collaborate then with engineers to, um, you know, improve the technique? Like, is it a big collaboration work? Yeah,
1: no, no. I mean, if you just look at the authors list. So, uh, of course, so there's me, uh, the second person was a PG student. So the second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth person were all um, experimentalists at different stages so Anne for example had the idea for the background so that was part of the calibration and had the idea for smearing the fringes which is also a, a parasitic effect that sort of clouds what we see. Um, Yuchin and Wecat were probably the two people I worked most closely with but so these are sort of the the, the core group of people in my group but then you have John uh, Griffiths who did the e-beam, uh, Ian uh, grew the material so I often say there's two things I didn't do in my PhD. Um, so I can say that I fabricated a device, I did the measurements, I did the analysis, I wrote the paper, blah, 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 blah. But there's two things I didn't do. First one was grow the crystal. So that was done by Ian, the, the wafer, so the actual material where we fabricate this. Um, and, and there's actually lots of physics that go into that. And it's not something you can f- just, the, the it's not it's not trivial, let's put it like that. Uh, and do the e-beam, so the electron beam lithography, how you create these very small structures that was done by John. Uh, David is one of the the, the lead PIs. Uh, Andrew is, uh, again, uh, another uh, lead PI, but uh, um, on the theory side, and Alex, uh, also the theorist we collaborated, and, and Chris was my, my PhD supervisor. But of course, then, uh, for example, the time I was at Yale, that was also all the, the, the group of theorists. Um, we we collaborate not maybe for this specific project but in other projects related to this we collaborate with material scientists probably that's closer to what i'm doing now in quantum materials um, but yeah you do have even within physics you do have lots of people with different expertise whether that's crystal growth clean room fabrication uh very sensitive measurements uh uh, for example, now I'm in Switzerland, and the reason why I'm here is because they, they have uh, facilities and and equipment uh, that uh, not many places in the world can reach very, very low temperatures, like five millikelvin, so I didn't have that at Cambridge, but I have it here. Um, so yeah, like everything in science these days, um, um, it's, uh, you also have yeah, strong collaborations both on the experimental and, and theory side, and I think If if you just go to any journal and start opening papers, mostly experimental papers, you'll see that there's often quite a lot, uh, a lot of authors, uh, partially, I think, because of that, Uh, but yeah, it's very strong collaboration.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And um, will any of like, will maybe this technology development that you um, also did, um, will those, be applicable to some, you know, I don't know, quantum um, computing, communication? Will there be maybe one day some application, you think, for like the wider?
1: Um, yeah, so um, I guess that's the hope. The, uh, the hope is that uh, if you now, I, I'd say right now the, the, the ball is more on the theory side because at least the way we did this experiment, uh, the way we, we hope the, the community sees this is that clearly there's something missing in the theory. We have a very uh, good theory that works at low energies, but there isn't really anything at high energies. And that was one of the challenges we had with this uh, um, work was that we had done the experiment and, and the data was there, but then we had no idea how to analyze it because simply there wasn't a model and i guess that it's exciting as an experimentalist when you're looking at things where the theory often the theory is ahead of experiment so often you have a prediction and then the experiment comes and either sees that or doesn't but it's also very exciting as a, an experimentalist when you you get right to the point where the theory ends or where the theory doesn't become very clear or at least you have multi, many models uh trying to explain the main the same thing so part of the hope i would say more in the long uh run is really that this would help uh improve the uh, the theory and then create better materials and of course uh applications to quantum computing would be one of them because of course quantum computing is very nice but for it to become useful quantum computing not just uh sort of like lab uh, or, or or textbook applications um there's still quite a, a few challenges mostly engineering and also um in fabrication that that we need to overcome so maybe this were, uh, could help there but uh like i said this is more in the the long run if you ask me where i see this maybe going uh sooner uh so that's one of the projects i'm working on now uh as part of so, sort of in my postdoc following up from my uh, phd work is energy harvesting so it turns out that a uh, uh, a slightly different system but with a similar technique and setup can be used to to produce a thermal harvester so basically something that um to, to explain this quickly um if you use your phone or your computer for long periods of time as you probably notice it starts to warm up uh, that's wasted energy uh when you charge your phone you want the uh, energy in the battery to go into powering the phone. You don't want to warm up the phone, it's not a radiator. So if you could somehow uh, tap into that energy collected and use it for useful work, uh, you would have a higher energy efficiency. Now, um, it turns out that a device like this, again, different device, but same technique and and fundamentally sort of the same working principle can be used to create a, a, a thermal engine basically a system that will generate energy provided there's, there's a gradient in temperature and so if you couple that with uh, whatever your device may be and if that device because it's not perfect it starts warming up then it can tap into that waste of energy uh, and start producing energy which can then be fed back into the, the system of interest um and so that's one of that's what we call energy harvesting and that's one of the things i'm trying to explore at the moment now um i i sort of tapped into this at the end of when i was talking about the paper because then you can say okay that's nice but if o- this only works at low temperatures it's not as if you can put that device inside my computer and no you can't but maybe you can put it in anything in outer space uh because this should work at one kelvin four kelvin and that's the typical temperatures you have in outer space um and so that's more direct application uh that i would like to explore is more in terms of uh, production of energy in space uh by creating these sort of like very small devices that then can be integrated in a a semiconductor chip um but yeah there's um i i guess there's a sort of like the long run direction where maybe this will go in i don't know how many years maybe I, i won't be alive and more the 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 in the short term, maybe five, 10 years from now, what I'm currently exploring as a proof of principle kind of uh, energy production. But uh, I guess it's like everything in science, you think it will be used for one thing and then it ends up being used for something completely different.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And that's why it's so important to fund basic research uh, without having to put like a direct purpose in there because yep. yeah, yeah, leads exactly. to and that's so important. And, at, um, at the end of
1: the day, what I'm doing is studying electrons in one D. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's almost playing with with them and seeing what what things you happen, what what you can see.
0: Did Elon Musk? Did you write him? <laughs> that you <he> should use <laughs> What there? Elon Musk that you write him for his Mars mission <laughs> to, Like give you money.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> know can... <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> give me money so I can keep doing this. <laughs> exactly. Uh, then you can do it on um, Mars maybe.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um Jacob, Frank, Ben, did you did you have more questions or people in the audience? Um Did you have more questions for Pedro? We are almost, the hour is almost up, so there would be time for maybe one or two questions.
2: Well, first of all, Pedro, thank you so much for the presentation. I'm listening closely, Uh, I probably, you've answered my question. in the past 15 to 20 minutes, I have this, this question that I, let me put it just plainly again, because we didn't ask it in a plain way. What are the, you described yourself as an experimentalist. And now that you find uh, f- found such a thing, right? Uh, what are the preconditions, the, the necessary preconditions? What's, what's the environment needed to find something surprising like that?
1: Um the environment in terms of experimental conditions
2: well you know uh, this is really a very broad question just as general as you as you, as you as you would make it i i have no specific
1: okay. uh, uh, direction sure. um i guess i mean experimentally um if you go to any physics lab these days uh, at least when you're doing fundamental uh, research or, or or i mean i don't like using the the word fundamental because uh but what i mean by this is is essentially doing research for the sake of research, not research with uh, the intent of maybe having a commercial product uh, five years down the line. That was never the goal with this project. But if you go to, to most physics lab, and, and not just physics, chemistry, any field really, um, normally the conditions in the lab are not uh, are, 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 are things where you need incredibly specialized equipment um to achieve. And then you sort of see something, you see, you understand, and then you try to make it work at more favorable conditions. Uh, those conditions may be, in my case, uh low temperature, so like I said, minus 273 Celsius, maybe high pressure, so thousands of atmosphere, maybe very low vacuum, may as in lower than the vacuum of outer space, maybe um maybe very small systems. So nanotechnology at the nanoscale or smaller, uh, very powerful lasers, all of those conditions where you just don't have in your daily life. Um, and, and really, you're, you're pushing you're forcing these systems to happen to, 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 to these kind of effects to happen. And, and maybe um, I, I think it's one of the things you don't realize until you do the experiment itself. If I tell you I'm doing a measurement for example what i'm doing now at 300 milliK and then i do a measurement at 5 milliK. maybe this doesn't sound like a big difference um but it, it, it's two orders of magnitude difference almost and uh, in nature many things follow, follow power laws and so by changing those orders of magnitude you can suddenly start seeing completely different things uh, completely different behavior if i saw you may look at uh, the panels for example in figure 2c and you see oh yeah i have such nice parabolas and resonance but if you were doing this above 10 kelvin which is still minus 260 degrees so you would say oh that's still very very cold you wouldn't see any of this it would just be completely blurred out you would be completely washed away so it's often the case that you you change your experimental condition slightly and suddenly it's like a almost a completely different system uh or different things can apply. So I think on the experimental side, those are the conditions. Of course, then um, again, uh, in hindsight, I'm here telling you about and the is written and uh, we, we have analyzed the data. Uh, but when you see this for the first time, uh, you're very skeptical. I mean, for the first two years of my PhD, we were trying to fit this with a single parabola because we have this preconceived idea that that's what it should be. Uh, and I think that's often the case in science. You have this preconceived, conceived, prejudice. Um, and uh, then you go around, around, around until the scientific method forces you to accept other possibilities. Um, so being in a lab and, and being surrounded by people with different expertise, and I, I, like I said, I am an experimentalist, but I quite like to um, talk and collaborate with theorists. Um, because if you try to do experiments without theory, it's, it's, it's like a shot in the dark like you might stumble across something but the odds are are much much uh, smaller so yeah I hope I answered your question but
2: uh, absolutely uh, yeah of course we could go on and on and uh, discuss all sorts of things yeah but uh, thank you very much
0: yeah thank you for that interesting question and yeah I think like that you're in academia able to discuss openly your research is also yep. really important because, you know, I've been also working for industry and there's kind of the opposite environment. And I feel like there's sometimes like stagnation because people are not allowed to talk about their research. So they go around in circles because they're kind of more on their own doing stuff. So,
1: yeah, we, and- we, we do have that in, in our because as you probably know the, the semiconductor physics group also there's a big big industry in semiconductors so some of my colleagues work for toshiba or itashi and of course they, they they're not allowed to discuss their research or their results they they, they normally don't publish they they patent mm-hmm. uh so um i guess it's different way of communicating but uh, uh yeah that, that kind of work is more industry focused rather than um just academic research not that they don't do research it's just uh, normally contextualized for a given product or with very set deadlines While here's more open-ended
0: yep so thank you so much for um, sharing your work and some background stories around it and um, answering all of our questions um that was really quite Remarkable your work and you know the how you presented it. So we really appreciate it. And yeah, thank
1: you for inviting me. (laughs) It was really nice.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, feel free to come back anytime. If you one day maybe have something new to share. Um
1: yeah. (laughs) Or (laughs) hopefully
0: come by when we have discussions like this. It was um yeah, it was, we really appreciate it a lot. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I can just add uh, one quick thing in case someone's interested. So there's actually a, a follow-up paper to this, which is currently under review, but if you go on archive and you look up my name, uh, you, you'll quickly find that, uh, I don't remember the title now, but it's something like decoupling, the spin and charge mass or something like that. It's uh, the electron mass uh so yeah it's a follow-up paper, paper to to this work and um but yeah thank you for inviting me it was very nice and uh, uh if, if anyone has any further questions feel free to contact me you can find my email easily um and yeah thank you
0: yeah that's so nice of you thank you we really appreciate that and um yeah thank you everyone for coming asking questions um commenting in the chat uh, course thank you (laughs) and um, yeah uh, if you'd like discussions like this follow the club we we have guest speakers here that come and share their research um, that are generous like Pedro with their time and um, yeah I hope to hear you all back soon (laughs) and um, enjoy your weekend Pedro and everyone else thank you and um, yeah, um, did you get to travel to Porto in the summer
3: at uh
1: no yet i'm 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 hoping to go maybe in september uh yeah i I haven't been home in a while, but uh yeah, I'm yeah. hoping to go there soon yeah, um,
0: yeah, good luck <laughs> I hope my <laughs> other pandemic doesn't get in the way
1: again, uh, yeah, I mean yeah same i mean, I was. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I the past two years I've traveled very little back home exactly because of the same.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me too. But anyways, okay. Good luck. We wish you all the funding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Thank you. And uh, enjoy your weekend, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'll Thank close you. the. Room. Bye. Bye. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone.